welcome back to the Offspring Magazine podcast. This is Xiaoran. Today we will continue our discussion about energy market with Professor Ferdi Shute, who is the director of Max Planck Institute for Colon Function. This will be the part two. I hope you will enjoy this part as well. And the ammonia is actually interesting. I'm not too, I don't know too much about the current technologies on how to decompose ammonia. The, relatively straightforward. You take a catalyst for 500 centigrades, flush mm. it over the catalyst, and it decomposes into nitrogen and hydrogen. And Simply you need to speaking. separate. Huh? Then you need to separate, but nitrogen and hydrogen is not a big deal. Okay. Uh, that's a relatively simple. So, what are kind of like ways to make? This process better, or you, the ways you, forward. You 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 do need the temperatures because thermodynamically, in order yeah. to decompose completely, you would need these high temperatures. So there is no question about it. But you want the catalyst to be better so that you can build the plants smaller. You want a very good heat integration of your system. So since you do have to supply these four hundred fifty five hundred centigrade somehow. And that's that's a key in many parts of the chemical industry. Anyway, you have many processes which interact in a way that you have excess heat here, and you use it to drive the process three plants down the road.、Mm. And so the the standalone ammonia decomposition plant is maybe not a very good idea because then you have to produce the heat somehow. If you can couple it. With another process which generates the heat anyway, that would be much better. And so, making plants smaller, making catalysts more efficient. You also don't want lots of ammonia slip. Ideally, you want to have one pass and it's decomposed. Everything is done. That 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 would be interesting. Since we talked about the decomposition of the ammonia, then if you want to transport hydrogen by ammonia, then you need to produce ammonia. Yes. So normally, how we produce the ammonia and、uh, Nowadays, the best、uh, solution to produce ammonia. Like, what do you think about that? Well, the 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 best solution is essentially still the solution discovered by Haber and Bosch hundred and roughly ten years ago.、Uh, so you pressurize it, you get go to high temperatures, you pass it over an iron-based catalyst, and you get ammonia. Not everything、uh, you. Put in is ammonia. The one pass conversion is typically below twenty percent, so you have separation and everything. But this process is really optimized nowadays. So the、mm-hmm. the energy integration, which I discussed before, for those processes work extremely well. And this is one of the probably one of the most efficient chemical processes which we are running. Because even if you get a tiny little bit more energy efficient. Since we produce so much ammonia in the world, it means a lot with respect to money. Whether we will have different ammonia processes remains to be seen. There, there are catalysts which work at lower temperatures by now, but their one-pass conversion is so low that the, the current separation technology would not work, and so the separation of the ammonia then kills the economics of the process. So. 
there, there have been many attempts actually to improve ammonia synthesis. I would say the only really substantial innovation was the introduction of a ruthenium catalyst instead of the iron catalyst, mm -hmm. something like 40 years ago. But currently still most of the plants are based on the iron process and only some of the plants have in the last stage downstream of the main process a ruthenium-based catalyst to convert a bit more of the nitrogen and hydrogen to ammonia at lower temperatures. But overall the old process is so optimized and so good integrated, energy integrated, that it's really difficult. It's really to difficult to replace it. The, the only thing where I, where I would say, putting aside the question should, should we transport hydrogen by ammonia? Mm -hmm. let's, let's just assume we, we only want ammonia. Mm -hmm. We ask ourselves, do we really want ammonia? No, of course not. Why do we produce ammonia? We want fertilizer. We don't want the ammonia, we want fertilizer. Except the ammonia we need for some productions, for polyamides and so on and yeah. so forth, some chemical production. But the majority of ammonia goes into fertilizer. And there we don't use it predominantly as ammonia or ammonium, we oxidize it to nitric acid and use nitrate fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Now, we are not interested in ammonia, we are interested in nitrates. So if we have a different way of making nitrates, we don't need ammonia production anymore. And the precursor or one of the precursors for ammonia production was actually a process uh, called Birkeland-Eide process operating in the early 1900s, which in German has the, the name Luftverbrennung, which means combustion of air, which is exactly what you do. You pass air through an electric arc, and in the electric arc you have several thousand centigrades. At several thousand centigrades, nitrogen and oxygen react to form NO. Equilibrium at high temperatures is on the side of NO. And then you oxidize the NO homogeneously to the other nitric oxides, and then you can produce nitric acid. So you produce fertilizer without making ammonia. As I said, we are not so much interested in ammonia, we want fertilizer. If we find, a, if we have dirt cheap electricity, and we do have dirt cheap electricity in parts of the world, the lowest bid I know for a photovoltaic plant, I think it was in Saudi Arabia, I mean the, the, the way how you nowadays uh, build uh, electricity plants is the, the government or the authorities ask for bids from companies. We want power plant 300 megawatts. How are you going to do it and what will be the cost of electricity? And then typically what the government do, does, they collect bids and the one who produces at the lowest cost per kilowatt hour gets the permission to build the plant. In some rich parts of the world, lowest costs nowadays are almost invariably photovoltaic plants. And the lowest bid I know was below a cent per kilowatt hour. Now you look at your electricity bill at home. Yeah. <laughs> 30 cents, something like that. Of course, this is not just the generation cost. It's the grid uh, uh, cost, it's taxes and so on. But typical costs in Germany for different electricity generation, coal, nuclear, gas, uh, photovoltaic, hydro, power, they are typically, let's say, 
five cents kilowatt hour plus minus and a bit. Gas is more expensive because you only use it short term during the year. Um, some may be a bit cheaper, but five is already low. As I said, in some rich parts of the world, a cent per kilowatt hour. It could be that the Birkeland Ida process, reacting nitrogen and oxygen in an arc, might become attractive again if you want fertilizer. So when, when sometimes one shouldn't just think linearly, but open your view a bit and ask yourself, what is the service we want? Yeah. If, if the service is fertilizer, you can look much more broadly than if the service is ammonia. But as I said, ammonia, we may need to transport the hydrogen. And so we have a different story for ammonia, possibly. What about, um, if, we, if we're talking about hydrogen storage systems, we've talked about ammonia, uh, what about metal hydrides? I don't think they will be large-scale storage systems. As I said, Michael Feldhoff is working on, yeah. on metal hydrides. They are really interesting for a combination of hydrogen storage and heat storage because when they react with hydrogen, they typically release heat. Yeah. When they uh, are, are decomposed, you need heat. And so you can shift heat around and at the same time have this material hydrogen, either in gases form where you can use it or in the form of a storage. So there are applications where it could be interesting. Large scale seasonal storage of hydrogen will almost certainly be done uh, underground. So we have caverns, there is different ways to store the hydrogen. There is, you, you can do it in so-called aquifers, which is uh, water containing strata in, in the ground. The one which is easier to understand, at least for a chemist who is used to work with gas cylinders, is caverns. So we have, especially in northern Germany, we have rock salt formations big, really cubic kilometer rock salt domes in, 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 in the ground. And you can leach caverns into these rock salt formations. These caverns we have already nowadays, they're used for gas storage, natural gas storage. Some of them are just leached domes from rock salt. They have a volume of, or can have a volume of several hundred thousand cubic meters, gigantic. Wow. And you store the hydrogen in these caverns at pressures above 100 atmospheres. So you compress the hydrogen, you have it in the cavern, and yeah, if you have 100 atmospheres in a 500 cubic meter cavern, that's 50,000 cubic meters of hydrogen, yeah. normal temperature and pressure you're storing. We are doing this nowadays, and that will Im increase in, in importance. And that's way easier than hydrides and so on. So if you want seasonal storage, hydrogen for the winter to heat, you would do it in the very same way as we do it nowadays with natural gas. And the same formations can hold hydrogen and natural gas. It's, it's not quite as simple. Uh, especially in these saline aquifers, the, the, the water-containing formations in the ground and not the, the salt domes, you may actually have microorganisms which like hydrogen, so they mm. would eat the hydrogen away and grow and block the passages and so on. So one has to investigate in detail what you can do, but uh, I, I know several sites where these 
hundred thousands of cubic meters caverns are used nowadays for storing hydrogen for chemical production actually. There is a site called T-Site in the US which is a refinery chemistry site and there is uh, the so-called Clemens Dome in Texas which is also in a, in a refinery compound where they have, I think Clemens is 500,000 cubic meter volume. So these are gigantic. Is there that's any? what we use for hydrogen in okay. the future, I'm dead sure. But just, just from a cost perspective, you just think that it's just going to be cheaper. It's, it's, it's way cheaper, way less complex yeah, than, yeah. than a hydride storage system. I mean, what you essentially do is these are leached by just pumping water into the ground. The water dissolves the sodium chloride or potassium chloride. It's taken to the top and then slowly released into the oceans. Uh, you have to be careful not to uh, have too high salt loads on the rivers and so on, but th that's being done. So you leach them by pumping water into them. If you have them, you basically just, I mean, I'm simplifying, but you have a tube and a valve <laughs> and a compressor, yeah. and this is essentially it. And that, that's proven technology that works. You don't have to develop anything. If, though, you don't see the potential of metal hydrides being used in the future, why are we researching them? No, no, no. I, I, I didn't say I don't see the potential. What I said is... It's just not going to replace. It's not the solution for seasonal oh, okay. energy storage. Gotcha, yeah. But there may be situations like, let's say we have a hydrogen pipeline uh, or, or also a natural gas pipeline and a compressor running on hydrogen or a gas-fired power plant running on hydrogen and we want cogeneration of heat and uh, electricity. You may use a metal hydride for storing the hydrogen as a, as a fuel yeah. for your power plant, but the hydride also for the heat, and by choosing the right hydride, you can actually control the temperature level at which the heat is released. So this is depending to what metal the hydride yeah, exactly. is exactly. So let's to. say magnesium hydride is around 300 centigrades. Mm -hmm. Magnesium iron hydride is at somewhat higher temperatures. And so if you have, let's say, a chemical production, or let's say you have an ammonia release. Exactly. I was just thinking of that. <laughs> like you have the ammonia you and then you produce the heat with the metal hydride. You yeah. may be able yeah. to... to uh, have the heat with the metal hydride. I mean, of, of course, th this is not the only two elements in a, in a big infrastructure, but th th there is use cases for the hydrides as there are use cases for the, the caverns. Large-scale seasonal storage, one would probably not use the hydrides, that's yeah. caverns. But in other applications, the hydrides may make perfect sense yeah and so i mean an energy system and an energy future will be very colorful it, it will not be just a red or green or yellow picture it will be a very colorful picture we will have many different components since we actually we now we talked about hydrogen production storage transportation 
And actually, when you mentioned metal hydride, I was thinking actually there are groups that are working on to use hydrogen, like metal hydride, as a hydrogen storage materials. Then you can use it on car. Then it's no. it sounds not. But since at the beginning you mentioned now we in the future we will use electricity from hydrogen. But I think there are also another idea. You can use hydrogen as a fuel directly. Yes. Have this combustion yes. system to fuel the car. Yeah. Yes, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, no, I mean several reasons. Metal hydrides as the storage medium in a car. We did research on this for about twenty years in the department, and my bottom line is this is not going to work <laughs> no, because you don't reach the storage capacities which yeah. you would need, uh, and so I, I don't believe that this is doable. The technology which we will probably have in the future is just a pressure tank. Maybe liquefied. I don't see fuel cells as the big solution for passenger cars anyway. Passenger cars will be battery electric vehicles, period. The batteries have such a trajectory of getting better, mm -hmm. this will not be beaten by hydrogen. I'm pretty sure about that. So all the passenger cars, I think, will on the long run be battery electric. For heavy-duty applications, the jury is still out. So there, there is estimates that in about 10 years, either hydrogen and a fuel cell or batteries for heavy-duty will be as cheap as diesel. So, and what the split between battery heavy-duty trucks and fuel cell heavy-duty trucks is, is totally unclear. The battery trucks are actually making progress at a astonishing pace. But I think we will have some heavy-duty machinery, heavy-duty trucks based on hydrogen in the future and fuel cells. I think we will have that. One has to say, however, that if we take internal combustion engine, hydrogen fuel cell engine, battery engine, the efficiency goes dramatically up. Internal combustion engine, overall efficiency, energy content of the fuel to driving, so mobility, about 25%. Fuel cell systems level, energy content of the hydrogen to mobility, roughly 50%. Battery, depending on the charge-discharge currents, the, more, the, the higher the currents are, the more losses you have. But if, if your currents are relatively low, so you charge low current overnight, you drive gently, 90% efficiency. So just from an energy conservation point and energy use point, battery is the best solution. Oh, how much money will you bet on this this side? <laughs> All of your money? You on on passenger car? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, again, heavy duty? I would place all my money on, on that. For electric. Yeah. yeah. What's for the heavy duty vehicles and long term like heavy duty Heavy duty for long haul, I mean for, for short distances in the city, last mile battery. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Long haul across the Alps, that's a difficult question. There I would probably place two thirds of my money on battery and one third on fuel cell. Huh. Okay. And what we haven't spoken about is aviation. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. a totally different That's a diff story. it's difficult I mean, as well. first of all we focus, when we, when we discuss our CO2 emissions, we focus very often on aviation, how evil it is yeah. that we are flying. Overall, 
less than 2% of the total emissions. Every percent counts. There is bigger fish to fry. Having said this, it's still important to do something about it. Aviation is not going to work with batteries. I'm not totally sure about hydrogen. Airbus has announced they will have a hydrogen-powered plane in the air, I think by 2032 or something like that, so relatively soon. Uh, it's, not to it's not clear at this point what kind of plane it will be, whether it will be a jet plane or whether they will be fuel cells to have a propeller uh, plane or whatever, but they want a hydrogen-powered plane in the air by, I think it was 2032. But uh, I think for most of our aviation needs, for decades, we will be stuck with hydrocarbons because you need this energy density of 40-something megajoules per kilogram, mm -hmm. which you cannot get uh, at least on a systems basis with hydrogen or any other technology. On the other hand, we can have sustainable aviation fuels. We can have biofuels. We can have fissure-trapped fuels made from biomass or municipal waste or whatever. We can even hydrogenate CO2 by fissure-trapped technology after reverse water gas shift and produce aviation fuels which are compliant with all the regulations. That, that's often a showstopper for fuels because the authorities allow only certain fuels on planes. Uh, but there, there, there is a number of approved fuels which you can do on a sustainable basis. So aviation will be a problem which is manageable, but it's going to be hydrocarbons, just sustainable hydrocarbons. I hadn't thought about it actually in that way. That makes sense. Okay. As I said, Airbus is working on the hydrogen plane, but yeah. it's going to be a tricky one. But now we're talking about electricity and basically we produce hydrogen and, and we want electricity. If mm -hmm. we want electricity... No, we want energy for certain services. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. We are not interested in hydrogen, we are not interested in electricity. Yeah. We want mobility, we want heat. Yes. And we want a TV, a computer, a cell phone. Th that's the services we want. Yes. However these services are created, we actually don't care. Whether it's electricity, hydrogen, solar heat, whatever, we want the services. You put some money on the electricity side, mm -hmm. but we also can produce electricity by nuclear, but why we don't use nuclear energy? Several, several reasons. I mean, when, when I was 20, I, I was, the world was black and white and nuclear was the most evil thing you could do. <laughs> and and I, I thought this, I was convinced that that was the most evil thing. I'm a bit more relaxed. When you get older, you get more relaxed anyway. But there are a number of downsides for the nuclear. First of all, it's expensive, way more expensive than photovoltaics. So cost is a big driver in the energy system. Second point, I'm, I'm not so much worried in spite of the accidents we have. Mm -hmm. I'm not so much worried about the risks in operating the plants. I'm worried about the nuclear waste, which we would have to deal with for long times, even if there are people who now work on what is called transmutation, so you have the slowly decaying elements, you convert them to quickly decaying elements, and so you don't have to watch the radioactive waste for 500,000 years, but just yeah. for 500 years. 
which is still a long time. Uh, and the third problem is the more radioactive material is around, the higher is the risk of proliferation. And Come on, the Russian war on Ukraine is, of course, made more complex and more dangerous because Russia is a nuclear power. They, they have nuclear weapons. So I don't want nuclear weapons around. We have them, but we shouldn't increase the chances of proliferating them even more. So the three points, cost, radioactive waste, and proliferation of nuclear material for terrorists or states, I think are good reasons against nuclear. I mean, I, I kind of disagree with you on the last one, just because I think that in science, a lot of the times, like when a scientific technology is developed, there's always good and bad to it. Science can be super destructive, and, but it can have huge benefits. Yes. And I guess there, it's it's the same with nuclear. I just I think nuclear. Yeah, I mean, if you think that the the downsides and the I think the downsides are outweigh the benefits, the, the upsides, yeah. Then yeah. then that then that makes sense. Um, and nuclear is not going to get cheaper. That's that's another thing I was I was gonna I wanted to ask is that going to get cheaper. Yeah. So I was going to ask actually with price, like I was just wondering whether maybe nuclear was so expensive right now, just because the demand is still fairly low. So I was just wondering whether if the demand increases, then just... Well, you said if we build more plants. Yeah. My, my hunch is, although I have no proof, this is just feeling, my hunch is the more nuclear plants we will have, the more awareness would be that this could be a danger, and the higher the the regulations, the more strict the regulations would get, and again, that makes makes it more expensive. Yeah. So I, I think mm. more nuclear plants would probably rather make it more expensive than cheaper. Okay. But the, this is more a hunch. I don't have yeah, yeah. hard data to prove that. There, there is people who work on, I wouldn't call them tiny reactors, but there is people who work on very small-scale reactors which are supposedly inherently safe but as I said the safety during operation is not so much my mm -hmm. concern anyway uh, there are accidents and they are evil and it's really bad if it happens but my main concern is cost waste proliferation so about waste though what about the waste that comes from solar panels that that's at least not radiating waste okay I would I mean let, let's say we take the vast majority of the solar panels. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have mass-produced cadmium selenide or something like yeah. that solar panels. But almost all the solar panels you see on the roofs are silicon. Okay. I, mean, I, I was going to ask what kind of metal is used because yeah. I didn't, I didn't I don't know. Care. I don't care about And so then the silicon so, I mean, waste silicon, is fine. You throw this, well, I mean... I wouldn't throw it away, I would recycle it because yeah. reducing the silicon dioxide to silicon and then producing solar grade silicon mm -hmm. from it, yeah. the reduction step is very energy intensive. So it would be stupid to throw it away, silicon. let it oxidize again, become silica again yeah. or quartz again. Um, so we, we, for all large scale technology, we need recycling chains. We also need them for the solar panels because it's not just the silicon, we have uh, copper wiring in there. Mm. there, there are semiconductor elements for rectifiers and so on in, in, in the overall system. And so, of course, we need recycling chains, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, that, that's doable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said, silicon is pretty innocuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And uh, uh, we know from February of 2022, and uh, you're one of science council members in Germany. I think it's Germany's most important adversary and board of science policy. And uh, and we'll also talk about like the bad side, the good side of science. What do you think about the relationship between science and politics? And how do you navigate your role like as a scientist at the same time, like kind of a consoler for the government? Well, the the the. The Science Council consults the government in questions of science policy, not in questions of general policy. Yeah. yeah. So, and science policy, I feel comfortable with. General policy is, in fact, a very different story. General feeling is that science should stay out of politics as much as possible. So, let's say, even in the most difficult political times, between different countries, there are many examples. Israel, Germany, Russia, Germany, China, Germany, or China and the rest of the world. And Israel and the rest of, but Israel, Germany is a particularly sensitive situation. Science has always held channels open and allowed to talk, build bridges when politics could not build bridges. And so I, and a similar role is actually being played by sports. It doesn't always work. Also, sports is political. But I have the feeling that for the overall benefit of the world, it is good if there are communication channels open, even between very strong adversaries by some means. And science and sports are domains in which this may be possible. Um, Science cannot totally keep out of politics. And w when it comes to scientific results, which influence politics, I think science should not keep out of politics. Let's take Corona. Dealing with the Corona crisis was in many respects a scientific question. There were scientific results which clearly showed this is what you should do and this is what you should not do. The vaccination was a discovery of science. Some of the basics now, how we handle the gas crisis, is a scientific question. What kind of technologies do we have available and on what time scale can we deploy them to replace Russian gas? That's a science and technology question. The political domain has then to draw conclusions from it, but science has to supply the underlying data. I mean, when, when, when the... Russian attack on Ukraine happened. I think Leopoldina issued a statement which I authored with a number of colleagues from Leopoldina, our National Academy, uh, what it would mean for the gas supply of Europe and particularly Germany. And some of the colleagues at the end wanted to have a statement in this uh, in, in, in this short expertise saying we should uh, we should have an embargo on gas from Ukraine but the majority of the colleagues said no we don't want to do it we basically try to put down the facts and then there are many other parameters entering the equation and based on all these other parameters and the facts, what we can do, you have to draw the conclusion whether we should have an embargo or not, because 
politics is typically way more than science. I mean, when, when let's take again the question of the corona crisis. Of course, it helps limiting the spreading of the virus if you close down the schools. But that has so many side effects, mm. closing down the schools, which are not scientific. They, they, they have to do with values, they have to do with social systems and so on. And science typically sees one section of reality. And a political decision needs to take into account also the other sections from reality. And so science has an influence and should have an influence in politics, but politics is more than science. And so that, that, that's a bit my view on the interaction between science and politics. Thank you so much for taking yeah. the time sure. to sit down with us. Um, I, I learned a lot. Um, and so I'm sure that the listeners have as well, because if I've learned, then we'll I see. learned a lot. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not an expert in this field. So thank you again. Sure. You're thank you very welcome. much. That's part two. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast, make sure to tune on every Friday. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.